It's 1988, the Grand Casino just outside Bruges, Belgium, 2 a.m. At the roulette table is a group of three women in their 60s. Fancy dresses, hair done up in that big 80s way. They're drinking red wine and have been for hours. It's clear that they've been here before. Best friends, retirees maybe, on their weekly night out. One of the women, Anna, is on a winning streak. She taps her manicured nails against a huge stack of chips, considering her next bet. A crowd of onlookers has formed around her, cheering her on. One of her friends blows her a big, dramatic kiss. Anna feigns embarrassment before blowing one back. Flirty and confident, she's the clear leader of the group. Turning back to the table, Anna gives the dealer a knowing smile and places all her chips on red. The onlookers gasp. Her friends just giggle. A hush comes over the crowd as the dealer spins the wheel and drops the roulette ball in. It bounces around and around and around and lands on black. Anna and her friends laugh hysterically. A stunned crowd can only watch as they down the rest of their wine, link their arms together and head off into the night. Outside, a waiting limousine driver opens his side door and the ladies pile in. They speed off in the direction of their home. A very large stone structure in the middle of Bruges. A place easily recognized by its large statue of a woman, a saint, standing defiantly out front. A holy place. A convent. I am Katarina Smets, a documentary maker from Belgium. For most of my life, I've been aware of the legend of a group of nuns from a certain convent in Bruges, the Order of the Poor Clares. It is said that one day they suddenly and sensationally revolted against the church to embrace a decadent, hedonistic lifestyle. This was the stuff of a Hollywood movie, except, well, it seemed to be true. Just like my parents and their parents before them, I was raised a Catholic, like many of my friends. As children, we all learned to pray and bow our heads and kneel to a man, always a man, with a stern face in front of the altar. But as I grew older, I became frustrated. Why was I, as a woman, forced to confess to someone who knew nothing of my dreams or desires? As all around me, institutions were exposed to me as disregarding the general well-being of women, institutions like the Catholic Church, I began to find something new in the legend of the nuns of the poor Clares. Where my parents' generation saw scandal, I saw inspiration. Could these nuns have pulled off some sort of wonderfully elaborate escape from the high and mighty stuffy patriarchy that had held them down? That was just a guess. So now, after all these years of rumors, hearing only vague bits and pieces of scandalous gossip, I want to find out what actually happened. Who really were the nuns of the poor Clares? Were these women pioneers? 
who somehow were able to break the stranglehold of this all-powerful institution. And in their quest for freedom, from sin, or from the patriarchy, or whatever it was that they were trying to escape, did they find what they were looking for? From the teams at Apple and Novel, this is Bad Nuns. The fact that the story of the Order of the Port Clares traveled so widely in Belgium can largely be traced back to just one source. Maybe to start, um, could you tell us who you are and um, what do you do in life? Uh, my name is Douglas de Koning. I'm a journalist. Today I describe myself as a crime reporter for the Belgian daily De Morgen. Douglas is the author of The Treasure of the Port Clares. His book was published in Flemish as the scandal broke in 1991. It was a bestseller in Belgium and became a conclusive account of what happened with the nuns in Bruges. When all this happened, I was a very young reporter. I think I was only 24. I was one of my first bigger stories I was allowed to cover. And um, I, I, very soon I realized that this was something... Um, something so much more than, than a few nuns. There was so much more behind it. Douglas tells me that this whole story actually starts hundreds of years ago. The Order of the Poor Clares began back in 1212, and they were traditionally very, well, poor, of course. They had orders all over the world. The one in Bruges was over 600 years old. The women in the order were mostly modest farm girls from the villages around Bruges who committed to a strict religious life, starting with their clothes. The best comparison uh, I could think of would be uh, a, a Taliban outfit for women. How do you mean? How would you describe what they were? Well, nothing, nothing was allowed to be visible, no hair, no... They really were, were hidden. In fact, the women had to lie down flat on their stomachs whenever a man entered the convent. This life for a poor Claire, that it means that you possess nothing, that you spend your days um, in, in a kind of yeah, uh, prison cell. There's no warmth, there's no medical help, there's just a very limited amount of food. And you pray all day for the sins of the rest of us. That's basically what they do. They had to confess their evil thoughts and they had to hit themselves with whips. That was their life for all those years. But by the mid-60s, the Catholic Church was making major changes. Convents started opening up a bit with rules that tried to connect with the reality of society. They heard that they no longer were supposed to spend all day in these jails. They could go out, they could connect with the world, they were free to do what they wanted to do, but this was very, very strange to them. If you open a prison cage after all those years, people were going to be afraid from the outside. So when this all changed, they start to wonder what, what kind of life have we lived. And that's the point where they make a U-turn of their life and they started to overcompensate. They wanted to take back the lives that were taken from them. But it started to seem obvious to the nuns that the people who had power over their lives were not going to support them. The bishop, the priests, the, the judges, the policemen, they were all men, uh, creating an image about how these women were. 
supposed to live? For the most part, it seemed like it was the nuns against the world. Until they were joined by an outsider. There was just one man who stands aside the nuns, and that's Ronnie Crab. Ronnie Crab, a kind of handyman in the convent. In the photos I've seen of him, he's smartly dressed, tie, polished shoes, shirt tucked in, bald on top with hair longish on the sides, a bit like a youngish Patrick Stewart, kind of neat looking. Ronnie was in his mid-thirties when he entered the Poor Clares, but this new arrival was no stranger to the interior world of the convent. Ronnie is a kind of child of the Flemish church. In those days, he had a lot of these young people. They had no family. They had no uh, father, no mother. They knew vaguely that they were the, the product of um, a forbidden relationship between a priest and a nun. So he was raised by nuns in a female convent. They gave him jobs like go to a convent and help these people with their problems. So at a certain point, he got a mission by the wisdom in Bruges, go to the poor Clares. It was 1985 when Ronnie Crabb arrived. And according to Douglas's book, he joined the convent in the midst of a wild transformation. There was some kind of silent revolution going on. The way Douglas tells it in his book, a key moment seemed to be a few years before Ronnie's arrival. It was 1983 and Mother Superior Anna decided the convent should open a small restaurant. The catalyst of this inconspicuous event, Douglas's book says, was Sister Anna. Sister Anna joined the order in the 50s as a young new entry. For many, she symbolized the future of the order. And she was helping the poor Clares to be less, well, poor. This new endeavor, she is said to have decided, would be much more effective than relying on handouts from the community. But less than a year after the restaurant was opened, the convent decided to adapt one of its wings into a hotel. And no sooner had that opened than Anna had decided they needed further funds to spruce up the convent for its new guests. They had a restaurant, a hotel, they make a lot of money because of the convent. You make beer, or you produce cheese, or you run a restaurant, you don't pay taxes. Also, you don't pay uh, salaries, because everybody's a volunteer. So, well, you can make a lot of money, because they could offer very low prices for very good quality. That same year, in 1984, the convent's restaurant introduced alcohol to its kitchen. Initially just to add to the chef's sauces, but the bottle soon emptied and the cook, Sister Colette, got a new nickname, Sister Cognac. Next thing, the bar was serving alcohol. With more money coming in, the nuns can really start spending. And they have an outsider who can help them with financial arrangements. Recent arrival, Ronnie Crab. According to Douglas's book, Ronnie had a strong bond with the nuns, particularly Mother Superior Anna. So strong that he felt comfortable telling her that he was gay. Anna's reply? Well, something along the lines of, don't worry about it. Lots of clergy are gay, too. Men and women. And she herself confides she had no desire to ever be with a man. The book alleges that at this point, the nuns are inheriting further funds from the wills of rich benefactors men they visited on their deathbeds. 
and Ronnie continues to help the nun's endeavors on a regular basis, advising them on financial schemes that increase their ever-growing fortune, and they give him a new nickname, Verderf Engel. It translates as the evil angel. This is when things are really escalating. It's 1985, and together, Ronnie and the nuns start to travel abroad. To Switzerland in the winter for skiing, and to the Spanish coast in the summer, where Ronnie says he sees Mother Superior Anna and Sister Clara walk hand in hand along the beach. And their spending is ratcheting up, eventually buying a farmhouse in France for around 3 million francs. That's about a quarter of a million US dollars in today's money. And it marks the start of a period of time where the nuns really seem to have developed a taste for spending their cash. They were making lots of money. They had a secret account in Luxembourg. They bought these cars, the big Mercedes limousine, and they had curtains behind the window. What are these curtains for? Well, they were going to the, the casino just to have some fun, to have some drinks, to have some cocktails. They wouldn't dress as nuns, of course. They took the clothes they liked, they dressed up, and that was what the curtains were for. The nuns discover the high life. They're getting into modern music. There was a rock festival um, close to the convent every year. It's very good, Cactus Festival. They also have very uh, modern bands, and they danced with the music, they enjoyed it. It was like party for them. Douglas's book says the nuns develop a taste for reggae music in particular. It's easy to feel charmed reading these passages, imagining the nuns bopping along to Bob Marley. But like any good tale, Douglas's story isn't just partying in good times. It also has conflict and tension. And as the year 87 turns to 88, the diocese starts to recognize that all is not as it should be with these nuns in Bruges. Maybe a visiting bishop heard the rumble of bass echoing down a corridor, or smelled the whiff of an unfamiliar herb when passing one of their cell doors. Either way, from 1988, the church starts threatening the poor clares with sanctions for their behavior. And according to Douglas, the church has also turned its focus on Ronnie Crabb, as someone who might be responsible for the nuns' increasing corruption. But the nuns will not stop. They've decided to sell the convent from under the noses of the church. And they've received a bid of 50 million francs, which is about four US million dollars today. They plan to escape to a castle they're negotiating to buy in France. They take private jets to visit their proposed new home. By February 1990, the final sale of the convent is nearly in sight. But Ronnie suspects their phones are being tapped. And he might be right, because two days before they plan to move to their castle, the police descend. Ronnie is arrested for stealing from the church. Others are questioned too. His boyfriend, an antique stealer, all of the nuns. In the account given by Douglas's book, this point sees the arrival of numerous other characters. Lawyers, cops, prosecutors, all seem to have Ronnie and the nuns in their crosshairs and the nun's fortune, too, which at this point had grown to many millions of dollars. With Ronnie in jail, 
the nuns must plan their next move without him. As soon as they heard that Ronnie was arrested, there was panic and they feared that uh, other measures might be taken against them. So they organized their escape to the south of France. Eventually, the nuns arrive at their new French castle. One of these nuns, apparently on arrival, she just took this bag of money and she let it rain <laughs> over herself. With all the banknotes? Yeah. A suspicious lawyer is now tagging along with them. Honestly, this book is a lot. But the key details here are that Ronnie refuses to turn on the nuns, even in jail. And the book says that the nuns too, well, most of them, stay loyal to him. They blame the church for making false allegations against both Ronnie and the nuns. With little evidence against him, Ronnie is eventually released from jail. But by now, the nuns' fortune is almost spent. They have to leave their castle and return to Belgium. But not to the convent. That life is over for them now. They've been defrocked. The book's narrative ends around 1991. And that's the same year that the convent of the Order of the Poor Clares is torn to the ground. Douglas never got to enter the building that gave him the first big story of his career. But that was the least surprising thing I discovered when I started to ask questions about his story. Because in telling this wild tale, Douglas didn't actually manage to speak to many of the nuns either. For the most part, Douglas's version is just the account of one key insider. Ronnie Crab. This is the news footage of the moment Douglas de Koning met Ronnie Crab for the first time. Ronnie Crab was still in jail. Then at a certain moment we heard that he would be released. So I went to Ghent to wait for him. In the news report, you can see a young, boyish Douglas in amongst a swarm of other reporters standing close to a wide-eyed Ronnie Crab. He was the guy who was really in the middle of the story. So a few days later he called me and we started talking, talking, talking. It was endless and I, I thought, this, that's where I really discovered uh, the true dimensions of this story, I think. Ronnie is a very good talker, but a very bad writer, so we started doing this together. And I took notes, took notes, and then a few months later there was a book. The Treasure of the Poor Clares became a bestseller in Belgium when it was released. In these pre-internet days, it became about as viral as you could get in Belgium. Copies sold out from bookshops, so it was reprinted, and then it sold thousands more. I can certainly see why. It is full of fantastic and colorful scenes of the nuns' double lives. Kind of Sister Act meets Ocean's Eleven. It's super fun. But to me, at least, it's also kind of troubling. Because it's not the nun's account of what happened. And it's not the account of many of the other eyewitnesses, either. It's Ronnie's. It's a combination of his storytelling and the writing of Douglas, who in 1991 was this young, inexperienced journalist, keen to make his name. And so it kind of makes me think. If these nuns were rebelling against the patriarchy of the church, as I imagined as a child, what would they make of the patriarchy of how their story was being told? A narrative which now seemed set in stone. A tale for which their lives would forever be remembered. I wanted to hear the truth, to hear more perspectives. If I was going to get to what actually happened and why, I needed to speak to the nuns. 
But these nuns were elderly even in the late 80s. Was I already too late? I started some digging and soon came across the death announcement of Sister Anna Bucks in 2018. Anna, the mother superior of the poor Clares. My heart sank. I felt like my worst fears were coming true, but then I read on a card in the death announcement. It said that Anna was lovingly remembered by Sister Clara. The sister who was once seen walking hand in hand with Anna down a Spanish beach, according to this best-selling book. Could Sister Clara still be alive? If she was in her 50s in 1990, she must be, well, in her 80s now. I start calling around, I dial the parish where Sister Anna was buried. I find the retirement home where Anna lived, and then I find her. Sister Clara, the last of the poor Clares. Hello. Hello. morgen. Hello. Bent u Sister Clara? Yeah. It's April 2022. I'm driving with my friend Fien to a retirement community through Belgium, suburbia. Outside, it's kind of serene, but inside the car, we're tense. And as we arrive, I consider the fact that she may well not even want to talk to us. We exit the car and arrive at the homes. Fien and I are stopped at the front desk. Hello, good evening. I'm Katarina Smets. And before we can go inside, the woman at the reception hands me a phone. What was that? Yeah, so I just got off the phone with the director of, uh, well, the elderly homes around here. And we are going to, we can meet him in person in a little bit. But he said, yeah, I'm actually, I'm, I'm um, forbidding you to talk to Clara because it's about the scrap affair, right? What? So... It seemed like the director of the community knew all about Sister Clara's notorious past. He already knew what it was about. And he said it really might upset her, so I rather not you speak wow. with, to her about it. The director of the community lives off-site, so Fien and I drive to meet him, hoping we can convince him to let us speak to Sister Clara. Oh, yeah. <sighs> okay, Fien. We just spoke to Luc Hermans, the the director or the CEO of the retirement home where Sister Clara is. And he didn't want us to record the conversation with him. Um, But as we kept going, he he got more open and shared a lot of details and stories about the nuns because it's not just Sister Clara who lives here. Sister Anna also used to live here and Sister Josephine. Yeah, he knew them for about 20 years, he says, right? Sister Anna was a saint, that's what he says. (laughs) Sister Clara, not so much. (laughs) No, she's a a different character. (laughs) Hearing why we wanted to speak to Clara and hear her story, the director eventually agreed that Clara herself could decide if she wanted to be interviewed or not. But he wanted us to know that it was not going Um, to be easy. Yeah. So the problem is, and that is something we shouldn't ignore, is that she has signs of dementia. Yeah. So sometimes um, not everything she tells is true. So that makes it maybe more difficult to interview her as well. But we will see tomorrow.
When we returned the next day, the director met us. He walked us to an elevator. We traveled up to a smaller room. And there she is. Hello. Sister Clara. Hello. Sister Clara. Today, just after her 88th birthday, she's a tiny lady with white hair and a sparkle in her eyes, a crucifix around her neck. She says she recognizes us, which is impossible. This is the first time ever that we see each other. Sister Clara is funny and sweet, but quite confused. As we talk, she tells us about herself, how she became a nun at 21 years old. She says she comes from a big family and had to oppose her parents' will when she decided to join a convent. Turns out Sister Clara was always a bit rebellious. Sister Clara offers to show us her diaries. She's completely open with us. She lets us take photos, make notes. But when we speak to her about her life, she occasionally seems confused about some details and destinations and the order of events. But then it becomes clear that there are some topics where suddenly things come into very sharp focus. One subject in particular where the strength of her feeling seems to crystallize into a clear-eyed focus. Ronnie Crab. She hates him, unashamed. It's Ronnie she blames for the entire scandal. Clara says... She can never forgive him for what he has done. Clara starts to describe the violence Ronnie Crabb used against the nuns. How he hit her and Sister Anna to try to control them. But she wouldn't keep her mouth shut. Some nuns did stay silent, she tells me. They bowed their heads and eventually fled for that castle in France. But Sister Clara refused. I asked if she had read Douglas's book. And what said the Yes. And what did she think of it? Horrible. Lies upon lies. Walking away from Sister Clara's that day, I was shocked by her revelation, its implications. And it sent me on a years-long journey to understand what really happened and why. What I found was that on the one hand, much of the nuns' tale of badass rebellion was true. They coordinated a radical and sensational break from the tyranny of the Catholic Church. But no sooner had the champagne cork come off with the pressure of hundreds of years of oppression, the nuns' rise had been stolen from them, corrupted and manipulated. And in the end, the nuns had been left with nothing. Coming up on Bad Nuns. I'll speak to police, lawyers, former partners, clergy members, prosecutors and journalists, antique dealers, limo drivers, luxury property agents and casino workers, the eyewitnesses, all coming together to tell a story of hedonism, botched investigations, concealed criminal records, fraught relationships, and physical and psychological terror. 
also that the church could conceal a much bigger story, what these nuns were actually escaping from. 